Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Historical Friction, a podcast about retelling the past and reframing the present through pop culture and fiction. I'm Abigail, and today on the podcast, Alice, Helen, Sarah, and I discuss the 2020 Netflix film Enola Holmes, starring Millie Bobby Brown as Enola, the younger sister of Sherlock Holmes, who's played by Henry Cavill. This episode loosely serves as a kind of companion piece to last week's Ripper Watch episode on A Study in Terror, though the two episodes can be listened to in any order. Unlike Ripper Watch episodes, however, there are no major content warnings on this one, but there is a note. A character in the film is called Viscount Tewkesbury, Marquess of Baselweather, and none of us could ever remember his name. So in this episode, the words Viscount, Marquis, Baselweather, Tewkesbury, and once or twice Baselworth all refer to the same character. As always, you can find our podcast on Twitter at History Friction. And if you like our podcast, please rate and review us as it can really help us to grow our audience or just recommend us to a few friends. We also have a Patreon, and the support you give us there really helps us to keep this podcast running. We've started to put out monthly digests for our Patreon supporters with sneak peeks of upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes looks at what we've been reading, watching, and thinking about lately. If you become a patron now, you'll have access to the April Digest, and you won't miss the May Digest, coming out soon. We're really grateful to you for supporting and listening to the podcast. Enjoy the show! Hi everyone, we've got a full house today. All four of us are here to watch Enola Holmes, which was actually, I think a lot of us were pleasantly surprised about this. Abigail, you really love this film and you were the one who suggested we watch it. Do you want to start us off by telling us a little bit about what this film is? Yeah, sure. So Enola Holmes is a Netflix film that came out in 2020 based on a book about the the fictional younger sister of the fictional Sherlock Holmes. The book came out, I believe, in the late 1990s or early 2000s. And the plot is that Enola Holmes, the younger sister of Mycroft and Sherlock, is living out on their estate in the country with her mother, who is very unconventional and has taught her jiu-jitsu and chess and has taught her ciphers, which I know Sarah is going to want to talk about. On her 16th birthday, she wakes up and her mother is gone and Enola decides she needs to find her. Mycroft and Sherlock come in to try to see what the situation is. Mycroft wants to send Enola to a boarding school. Enola runs away from home where she meets the Marquess of Tewkesbury, Baselworth. He's got a long name. And uh, we're just gonna call him Marquess. And he is a boy about her age, so probably roughly 17, 18. And he is a dandified boy, but she (laughs) kind of has mild maybe sparks with him they get to london he goes off to do his own thing she goes off to do her own thing she's pursued by people who are trying to kill him and shenanigans ensue so that's that's the basic plot (laughs) so the film takes place in 1884 roughly there are a couple of like glimpses of newspapers references to sort of other things going on. But this is very much a film about political transformation and things like that. And it turns out when she does eventually find her mother that her mother has been involved in some of the more kind of militant suffragette campaigns, including plans to blow things up, which I thought was really interesting. We can probably talk more about this when we're getting into the kind of feminism of this film. But there were not any kind of real organized bombing or arson campaigns by the suffragettes until the early 20th century. And so it was quite funny to see that kind of included as a reference point in this. 
But whilst Enola is frolicking around trying to find her mother, she's also trying to protect the Viscount. I can't remember his name either. Do you know what? I'm going to look it up. The Marquess Basil. Oh, it's Baselweather. Chooksbury. And they have to do some hijinks to find out who's been trying to kill him. And she does eventually find her mother, or rather her mother finds her. And so this whole kind of plot from the beginning ends up being a little bit of a MacGuffin. She doesn't actually find Eudoria. Eudoria comes to her. And so the film is, it's a kind of a coming of age film, I would say, crossed with a bit of a mystery, hijinks. It's very hijinksy. Yeah, there's a lot of references to how they want social change, but not what that social change is or what that would entail or it's just that there will be social development of some type and that some people are very very opposed to these good things happening yeah they allude to the fact that it's going that the social change is going to mean more equality for women and there's a slight illusion that perhaps it will help people of color based on the character of edith but it really is just kind of there to pay lip service to the idea of progress rather than to have any like meaningful engagement with social reform in 19th century Britain. I think it's, it's political ideology is kind of fairly woolly and non-specific because there seems to be this thread running through it that the way you achieve things politically, the way you achieve progress and change is by peaceful means and democracy. People who use violence and and force to get their way, those are the old guard, those are the people who are outmoded and eventually they're going to be swept away and they will not win. Which is kind of like a good point, I guess, except it's completely contradicted by the fact that Enola and her mother are both treated like as individual sort of enlightened feminist women as being these quite violent characters like Eudoria has this extravagant explosive plot and it's a bonding routine for these two women that they learn how to make explosives together. Eudoria has also trained Enola in a martial art and there's several choreographed fight scenes here where Enola is sort of seen to be like this combative badass in a very sort of I would say outmoded sort of girl boss post-feminist kind of (laughs) enlightened characteristic so the film stands on like how exactly you enact change do you take it for yourself by violence is that wrong or is that right is extremely incoherent and it feels like their overarching point was somewhat diminished and undercut by the attempt to make Enola seem like as quote-unquote badass as possible. And not only that, the like the ultimate change comes from the House of Fucking Lords. Yeah, but there, I think I feel like there are two distinct impulses with the um, political kind of drive of this film. And one is, and we'll get into this slightly more, but the kind of girl boss feminism that undercuts the entire thing. But the other, I think, can maybe be, which is that. A real political change can only happen through voting. Voting is the most important thing anyone can do. And this film was released pretty much, I think, about a month before the 2020 American mm-hmm. election. Yes, that's correct. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think, as um, as in terms of making a political statement, I think that's where we have to look for the kind of impetus for like that that particular part of the narrative. 
That actually makes so much sense contextualizing one of the quotes that really nagged at me in this film, which was there's a moment where they're reading about this reform bill in the newspaper and Mycroft Holmes, played by campley mustachioed Sam Claflin, says, oh, that's just what this country needs, even more uneducated voters. And I was like, oh, OK, like they're doing like a little Easter egg contemporary conservatism joke and sort of talking about like the rise of people who are uneducated making like ill-informed voting choices. Except the effect that that has is that it means that one of the Holmes family is implicitly against enfranchisement. And so it's this, again, like really ideologically contradictory, like Easter egg. I don't know where the ideology stands here. Yeah. I also, because of who I am as a person, really want to talk about the fact that the thing that they seem to be voting on is the 1884 Representation of the People Act, (laughs) which was actually, Gladstone had to split it in half. And so... Part of it didn't pass until the following year, but essentially this act and its kind of sister in 1885 were designed to give more parliamentary seats to London, so it's a slightly more proportional representation in Parliament. But more than that, uh, it increased male suffrage to all of those who either owned land to the value of £10 or paid annual rent of £10 on land of that equivalent value. And so it's by no means a kind of universal suffrage. It's a much wider suffrage than previously. And it has a really significant impact in Scotland in particular, because suddenly a lot of the crofters count as landowners and voters. And so it is part of the kind of ending of the Highland clearances, and it has these really important political consequences in terms of land management. And it's not actually super impactful in England, because England's very industrialized by this point. But everywhere else in the UK, this has much, much more impact. But there's no mention of women, there's no mention of people who are not landowners, there's certainly no mention of people of colour more broadly, there's very, very little... It's, It's kind of this tiny little inch towards a more universal suffrage. But in the film, it's presented as this kind of like big, exciting thing of suddenly everyone will be able to vote. And I just find that interesting because I understand that there are not many people watching this film who particularly care about the history of British parliamentary acts and the rollout of suffrage. But this did kind of like bug me a little bit and I think fits within the kind of bigger bigger political message of the film and kind of girl bossiness of it is that you have these female characters who at no point talk about the idea that they might be like aiming for votes for women. It's really interesting because it's all about sort of like improving the world, but they never actually give any explicit explanation of what what that might be. It's just about progress and things being better. And then to balance that out, you have to have the villain of the piece being Francis Delatour in the campest goth makeup, (laughs) being so, so extravagantly gothic. Um, trying to murdering her own son and trying to kill her grandson for the sake of protecting England. And the whole thing just felt very uneven in terms of what is actually at stake here. I thought it was really interesting the way that if you think about sort of the main players in this film, it does position them all as women other than Sherlock and Mycroft. And it feels like the only reason Sherlock and Mycroft are there is because this has to somehow be a Sherlock Holmes story because Enola is related to Sherlock. But like the main players are Enola's mother Eudoria, Enola herself, and then the grandmother of the Viscount Baselworth Marquess of Tewkesbury or vice versa. And then, um, and then also we have sort of as minor 
major characters. We have Fiona Shaw as Miss Harrison, who is the head of a boarding school. And then we also have Edith, who is a Black British woman who runs a tea room and who is friends with Eudoria and teaches jujitsu lessons upstairs above her tea room. And they all kind of represent these different viewpoints. So Edith and Eudoria and Nola are all sort of combined towards progress and that unidentifiable way that just seems to sort of include rights for women as an ambiguous thing. And then we have Miss Harrison and the Marquess's grandmother who are on the conservative side of things about like what what women should want or what England should want more broadly, which is a patriarchal overlord without any nuance. And it's it's all these women who are fighting it out really throughout the the plot points of the film. I'm interested that you would count Fiona Shaw's character amongst that because I feel like as a character, she's, you know, she's the headmistress, she's this educator and she is very authoritarian and she uses um, corporal punishment, which is like a huge no-no. She slaps Enola in the face, and like all that aspect of it. She's like, a villainous character. But the thing that I found really interesting was that in a lot of ways I agreed with her and I thought that that was like really interesting in terms of like how this film positions different feminisms. So she's an educated woman. She sets herself up as progressive in many different ways. Like she drives this insane kind of steampunk car that I'm pretty sure is a fictionalized anachronism because it is simply so rackety and weird. And she says to Enola, upon their first meeting, when she's sort of measuring her for clothing and, you know, demanding that she get measured for a corset, you know, I'm not restricting you. I'm teaching you freedom because if you conform to what society expects of you in specific ways, then you can go out and move amongst it and communicate and express yourself and be present in the world. And this is treated in the film as such a hateful and oppressive idea. But at specific points, I find myself thinking, if Fiona Shaw is really right about this, like you have to meet people where they are sort of politically and artistically and ideologically, all of these things and match with things just enough that you are taken seriously. And, and part of Enola's whole problem is that she is so tomboyish and so strident and so demanding that a lot of the time she isn't taken seriously. And I was kind of thinking, like, although the headmistress character is portrayed as such an oppressive figure, she kind of is right up until she slaps her in the face and then she's the worst. My note on that is, honestly, other than slapping her, Fiona Shaw isn't terrible. Her chat with Miss Harrison's a bit harsh, but she really does, but Miss Harrison really does seem to be trying. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, I thought particularly (laughs) the stuff around fashion early on with the fashion being what allows you to move through the world was interesting and coincides a lot with my research on Cinderella and how the ball gown allows her to move in certain spaces and not to move in other spaces. Um, So that was really fascinating. I think for me, what goes wrong with Miss Harrison is that they position her as sort of a, 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 a regressive woman in terms of today's standards, because she often is telling 
Enola to lose weight. She tells her she needs to lose a few pounds and like where her body is like the wrong measurements. And that wouldn't have even been the the ideal body type at the time. It's like she wants her to be like Britney Spears in 2000 or something. And like, that's not the (laughs) ideal body type. So that seemed weird. And at the end of that talk that she has with Enola at the school, where like, I agree, she does seem to be like trying to make Enola understand how the world works. And explicitly positions herself against Eudoria's ideology by saying, I knew your mother and that kind of conversation that she and her mother didn't get along. Uh, She was like, but you're going to thank me for what I'm doing for you when you're married and you have a pair of strapping boys. And she walks out. And so it's as if, you know, you aren't going to have girl children because that would be a failure. And also the phrase strapping boys is just associated with Gaston and Beauty and the Beast for me. That's the only place I really know it from. So I was like, oh, I guess she's like the Gaston villain. Like, you'll have a pair of strapping boys. Um, but, yeah, but I also I do definitely take your point, Helen, that I think that she's a she's a really interesting, deeper character than maybe they intended her to be. And she's kind of made ridiculous in the plot. There's this kind of like implied subplot that she's a little bit in love with Mycroft. And, you know, maybe she wants to be married to him instead of being an educator, instead of being an old maid, etc. And they sort of like have a little fun with this in the plot. And that is part of the escape that Enola stages from the school. And, you know, I, I kind of felt for this character. I think that In a lot of contemporary media, Victorian educators get a really bad rap because inherently they are teaching Victorian ideologies. But as you say, you know, the whole weight loss point is quite anachronistic and it's much more reflective of what a contemporary audience thinks a Victorian headmistress would believe rather than what they might actually have believed. And so it's it's this kind of strange notion that someone who by educated means might have been one of the more progressive characters within that society because she's an authority figure we have to clamp down on her character and make her seem sort of villainous and i wonder how much that is to do with the fact that like both francis delatour and fiona shaw are really really brilliant actors who fit into i would say that they both have this incredible skill to be like they're comic actors they're both really funny and they give fucking fantastic villain and they do have this great ability to be kind of like funny and campy and villainous at the same time and i think fiona shaw is a brilliant actor and so she and i adore her i would watch her in anything she's delightful she was also the best thing about lizzie <laughs> and where she played a really similar character she played a really actually. similar I character i just realized that that's so <laughs> <Yeah>. funny <laughs> um and i think that i think that this character is kind of rescued by the performance as well. I wonder if someone else had been in that role, whether I would have found as much depth in Miss Harrison. And likewise, Frances Delatour, I think the kind of like solemnity that she gives this unbelievably ridiculous character is fantastic. This this film does good, like everyone in this film is a big name. <laughs> and I found that really quite remarkable. Like Helena Bonham Carter plays the mother and she's in it for about 30 seconds. <laughs> she's she's doing this tiny part, but she's doing it in a like really delightful, committed cameo. And I found that quite charming. Yeah, I thought that all the performances in it were really great. And I, re- I really loved Helena Bonham Carter. I think she was one of my favorite parts of the entire film. I would like to talk about 
the kind of connection between this and the actual canon of Sherlock Holmes, because I think that actually one of the only performances that I found really difficult and annoying (laughs) was Henry Cavill as Sherlock Holmes, mostly Mm -hmm. because this man does not look like he takes morphine and cocaine. This is a man who clearly exists exclusively on protein. (laughs) And (laughs) he is just, he is just a really big man. He is a very, very large and handsome boy. He is the definition of a strapping lad. (laughs) And he is not Sherlock Holmes material. They tried so hard to disguise the fact that he was bursting out of his suit at every possible... This man possible is fucking massive. How did he get this role? I genuinely do not know. That's... I, I love him. I mean, I love him. Like, it's not a slight on him. It's just... I would... If you'd said who should play Sherlock, he would have been nowhere near that list. I would have picked Sam Clayton before I picked him. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, my favourite thing about this film is the fact that Netflix was sued by the Conan Doyle estate for giving Sherlock Holmes emotions, which is just... And he's not that emotional He's not even it. emotional. He's not even that emotional. But allegedly, the argument from the estate was that uh, Sherlock Holmes was only depicted as having emotions in stories published between 1923 and 27, and therefore they were still under copyright, and it was a copyright violation to give him feelings, which is incredible. Yeah, I went and had a look at the um, the website for the Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle estate, where they talk, they have sections where you can contact them if you want to license their characters, and they have like a picture gallery of all the times that the Sherlock Holmes character has been used, and it's very heavily dominated by like Benedict Cumberbatch and Robert Downey Jr. That's Those are the two first pictures, and then there are the films from like the 70s and 60s. So my, to me, it feels like the reason they were suing wasn't because of the emotions. It was because it was making him play second fiddle to a girl. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering what level of capitalist hell we're at where an institution can claim copyright over a fictional character's emotions. I know, right? (laughs) But the kind of, I mean, so on that note, on the idea that, that this character is playing second fiddle, my only exposure to this film before watching it was the marketing campaign about it around its release. I don't know, did any of you see this at the time and the coverage of it? No, no, not at the time. I have huge thoughts about this and I really wanted to write something about it at the time, like a blog post or something, but I had so many thoughts that I was like, no, save it and write a proper academic scholarly article and then I never did. Well, now is your time <laughs> um, to shine. But... Now is now is my time to talk about this, so I'm going to climb up on my soapbox. Here I go. Um, so in my some of my academic writing, I write about women in neo-Victorian literature and film, and I've done a lot of feminist focus on the way women are explored and how that sort of reflects contemporary society. And particularly, I'm very interested in this really problematic claim that a lot of neo-Victorian fiction and media makes, which is that you can resolve problems of inequality and you can resolve problems of sexism within the Victorian canon by writing a contemporary fiction set in the Victorian period and just injecting a woman into that piece of media just like putting her in there 
The political spin on this is that this is reclamative justice. This is sort of saying, like, you know, we haven't heard these voices before and now we get the chance to do that. So there were like two aspects of this marketing campaign and both of them were doing this slightly suspect Yeah, so basically they put these statues and all of the statues were identical, which is the most important thing to me. They had this kind of generic white woman with hands on hips and a big full skirt in this kind of gold plasticky shit material. And they put them next to statues of famous historical men and put a little plaque on it being like, this is the sister of whatever man. So they did like, they did Thomas Hardy. I think they did Dickens. They did Mozart. They did a bunch of other kind of like big historical men. And then they were like, ah, they have sisters. Would you believe it? (laughs) And the whole point was that it was meant to be like a reclamation of these women's stories. All of the statues looked exactly the same, which really pissed me off. And it was, it was so grim. I hated it. Yeah, that was one of the things that like particularly enraged me about it was that the took these women from history who they were claiming to sort of reclaim and and give voice to in a new way but they cast every single statue from the same mold like literally all these women from the same mold same body type same shitty undetailed dress form shape it was really really lackluster and uninspiring and temporary like these were not intended to be statues which lasted they were only intended to stand for the duration of a marketing campaign which is so cynical but the the thing that is like most annoying to me is that what they were essentially saying with the optics of that campaign was not look at this amazing woman who did something fascinating in history it was look at this woman who is contingent upon a man. Yeah. And when you see like that statue in relation to its space, it's essentially just saying she is only interesting because of who she is related to. So in my mind, it just did the opposite of what they were intending to do. And and this happened at the same time, very, very close in time to when the very <laughs> unattractive and politically troubling naked, vaguely formed Mary Wollstonecraft statue was unveiled. Ah! So it kind of contributed to this whole general... (laughs) A general noise of horror is exactly what the statue discourse was around the time of this marketing campaign. And it was just a really unfortunate time for like women as statues. For people who aren't familiar with the Wollstonecraft statue, it was intended to be a memorial to Mary Wollstonecraft. And in the initial planning, it was sort of this beautiful, silvery, organic form with the statue of the woman herself being sort of abstractly rendered. But what we ultimately ended up with was this like hyper-realistic vision of a nude woman with firm nipples and incredibly detailed rendered pubic hair stood on a plinth with all these other vague half forms of women's bodies like writhing around her. And it was this, it managed to be a statue that, that pleased absolutely no one and enraged everyone. Everyone hated it. Is it not quite like, it's not, like life size either like her the her the yeah yeah yeah. it's just this little like barbie sized nude (laughs) with the most incredibly sculpted bush (laughs) and she's got a fucking absolute sour ass face as well she looks furious it's incredible i hate it so much so at the time of this marketing everyone was like so disturbed about women in statuary in a way that probably has not been the case in the history of art for like a hundred years so it came at like 
the worst imaginable time. The other thing that I wanted to talk about the marketing in the trailers for Enola Holmes, they did this sort of very neo-Victorian move, which was taking a contemporary song and using orchestral music to make it sound Victorian. So a very classic sort of in the style of Bridgerton, you know, rendering of a modern song, making it sound old timey. But the song they used was Celebrity Skin by Hole. What? <laughs> Great song. Absolute banger. But it, it is this sort of, um, you know, post-feminist anthem. And there's particularly, and I think this is the reason why they chose it. This is my theory. There are specific lines in it, which is, my name is might have been, my name is never was, my name's forgotten. I'm pretty sure that's why they chose to use that song as the kind of Enola Holmes trailer anthem. Because it's all about like this female character who doesn't exist in the canon. And if you're looking at the true sort of Victorian canon, she is not representation because she's been injected into a more famous masculine story as contingent upon her famous brothers. And I think that's kind of why, you know, they had to neutralise Sherlock Holmes. They had to make him much less impressive because otherwise she can't stand as a character on her own. And so having had all those thoughts about the marketing campaign, when I watched this film, I was fully prepared to go into roast mode and not love it, but it absolutely won me over. Yay! And I have to say, like, I don't know who was behind those marketing decisions at Netflix, but those choices were not really representative of the film as a whole. And I think if they had just shied away from trying so desperately hard to say, we are doing a great political we're service doing a feminism. to women and, and writing a feminist rock. We're doing a feminism. They didn't have to do that. And this still would have been a banger of a film and it still would have had a mild feminist message, a sort of neutered feminist message, but a feminist message nonetheless. I'm claiming off my soapbox now. <laughs> I don't think I ever saw the marketing campaigns. Like, I do vaguely remember hearing about the statues, but I wasn't really paying attention. But I watched it the day it dropped on Netflix. Like, I remember being excited for it, but I don't have any memory of the marketing campaign. But I feel like what you're saying about the marketing does tie in with how within the plot, I think it tries to position itself as we've said earlier as like girl boss like it is interesting because you do have this very like 20th 21st century creation being dropped into a Victorian creation and expected to sit easily alongside it but that entails a lot of retroactive history and then of course we have the the ubiquitous in every film, corset moment, where any historical piece where a woman wore a corset, we got to have a moment where we talk about how the corset is uh, is repressive. So in addition to the scene with Fiona Shaw putting her into a corset and saying, oh no, this is going to help you move freely. There's a moment where Enola, once she gets to London, she's disguised herself as a boy to run away and get to London. Interestingly, in Sherlock Holmes's own boyhood clothes, she says, the very clothes Sherlock wore. That was cute. Yeah. And then when she gets to London, she goes to a dress shop 
offers the woman an obscene amount of money because she doesn't know how money works and is like, can I buy some clothes? And she says she's going to transform into that unlikely thing, a lady, because that's what her brothers will never look for. And in that moment, she puts on a Victorian style corset and she, they, throughout the film, they sort of do this flea bag thing where she talks to the camera or like makes faces at the camera. And I was genuinely wondering if it was inspired by flea bag, <laughs> like flea bag. I would not be surprised. YA. <laughs> Yeah, but she says, uh, she says the corset, a symbol of repression for those who are forced to wear it. But for me, who chooses to wear it, it's like the perfect disguise. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> we really have to have this moment. When she said that line, I groaned so loudly that my cat got off my lap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just to absolutely set the record straight, corsets are basically bras. Yes. A decent corset that actually fits you is not uncomfortable. The whole point is that they do change your shape. Some people did use tight lacing, but they also use strategic padding. The kind of illustrations that we see of people in corsets where they're like really big boobs, tiny, tiny, tiny waist, really big hips are exaggerated because they are cartoons. <laughs> this is not how people actually looked. It's physically impossible. Wearing a corset changes the shape of your body temporarily. Waist training is a lie. Well, None of these things are permanent. Yeah, and waist training wasn't ever thought of as a concept for 18th and 19th century women. That's a much newer term. I, I used to work mm. at Colonial Williamsburg, so I wore an 18th century corset called stays. I wore stays every single day for work. And they were very comfortable and they provided great back support because I was I was a worker. I was in historic trades using very heavy implements and I needed that that back support as much as the boob support. So I'm I'm pro stays, just not pro tight lacing. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of Again, a very contemporary sort of discourse style that we see in which feminism tries to cater to everyone by saying, you know, makeup or shaving has oppressive origins, but you are a woman and you have choice, la-di-da. So if you like yourself with makeup, if you like yourself shaving, then do it. And it, it, it just kind of, it was a very sort of contemporary viewpoint of trying to simultaneously do this historical claim that the corset is oppressive because one kind of feminism and then also say I am choosing to wear this because of a different type of feminism and that kind of like interesting double bind that I very much associate with the present day is um very apparent in that discourse I think particularly for the fact that Enola kind of learns to love her corset and gets her life saved by wearing a corset yeah. because she gets stabbed and then it turns out that it's, you know, armor, which I don't know. I'm not super sure that that would yeah, be accurate. No, but, who knows? I, but I did. I found that moment really interesting <laughs> when she gets stabbed and it's like you can see the whalebone in it. And she says, I knew you would have a truer use. And I was like, that's really fascinating that like that moment is even in there. But Moreover, she has just had an incredibly difficult jujitsu fight wearing this corset, and it has not stopped her one bit. Right. And I was like, so I don't know what the fuss is, Anola. <laughs> like, 
Girl's got a fucking crinoline on <laughs> and she's still doing this fight <laughs> and she's still bitching about her underwear. It's it's ridiculous. Um, I When she put that corset on in the changing room, I literally wrote in my notes, she's going to set this on fire at some point because I was mm. so sure that we were going to have the kind of like note hitting bra burning counterpoint to the corset. Mm-hmm. And she didn't because then it saved her life and it was all fine. But I could really, I could, there was some, I knew that there was going, like it was fucking Chekhov's corset that either she was going to like rip it off and set it on fire or it was going to save her life. I think something really interesting too is the parallel or foil with the end of this film when the Viscount of Baselweather gets shot and he has like a chainmail thing, a, a piece of armor that he's put on under his shirt. And it sort of reflects that same moment as when Enola got stabbed with her corset. And I just, I really think the whole characterization of this boy that she meets compared to herself is fascinating and they have so many parallels throughout but when you meet him you think that like you're going to hate him because he's got long hair which I think is a holdover from the book where his mom uh styled him like little Lord Fauntleroy <laughs> and uh <laughs> then he you know he's in a little dandified suit and he seems sort of um for lack of a better term, traditionally feminine. And Enola hates things that are traditionally feminine. She makes a big point about how she never learned to embroider and she never learned to string seashells and stuff like that. But then as after they make this daring escape and they're walking to London, presumably, you find out that the Viscount knows a ton about flowers. So she's like, we should find a place to sleep. And he's like, oh, we should eat first. And she's like, where do you see food? We're in the middle of an field and he's like here it's clover but he has like all of the scientific names for these plants and he's like basically an amazing forager and so they have like this really good dinner because of his knowledge of plants which Enola has a knowledge of flowers in terms of the book the language of flowers and like sort of the the secret meaning of flowers and uses it to communicate messages but she doesn't have any knowledge of how to feed herself outside of a situation where she's had to cook her whole life and I just found it really fascinating that he sort of has all of these more traditionally feminine or or idea flowers are associated with women more than men and he embodies all this while being ultimately a man in their society and taking his place in the House of Lords. So his sort of gender fluidity at times, there's never real any real gender fluidity, but playing with traditional ideas of masculinity and femininity with his character and with her character, and then that moment with the corset and the armor foiling each other, I thought was really fascinating. There is some really great potential in this film to sort of get more in-depth into the concepts of kind of gender play. There's a lot of gendered reversal. And I think you're absolutely right, Abigail. These two kind of characters that don't conform to very stereotyped gender norms of the time period. And the two of them sort of playing together and learning positive things about their own gender and their own gender norms through the eyes of the other person is quite lovely and I think there would have been the potential for even more of that gender play within the film I did think it was interesting that every time the plot needs to move forward that's when Enola must change clothes with a man and disguise herself as a boy 
Yeah, I mean, I think Alice pointed out when we weren't recording that she spends about 20 pounds trying to change clothes with people throughout this film. (laughs) She's constantly bribing just like newsboys, delivery boys, like, I'll give you five pounds to swap clothes with me. (laughs) And it's so much money for that time period. (laughs) Like So much money. It's an incredible amount. And even there, it's kind of like that thing of of gender play within very specific boundaries and limitations, because it's a running gag. This is something that she does repeatedly. And I think the thing when you look beneath the surface that is treated as funny within the film, when you read the expression on these young stable boys' faces, is that as a woman she can disguise herself as a boy and get away with it. But there's something inherently masculine about them, which is going to make them seem ridiculous because they're going to be wearing a dress. And that's kind of where like this gender play idea is quite one-sided because it's fine for Enola to be masculine, but there's still that element of making a joke out of a man in a dress, which is very traditional and doesn't quite show the progressivism that the film thinks it's showing. I thought her most interesting disguise, though, was her widow's weeds when she dresses as a widow in like full black Victorian morning garb with the veil to visit Tewksbury's, the Tewksbury residence. And it's just fascinating the way that in the book, too, there's the moment where she does that in the book. And she talks about how she does it because like, nobody will bother her. I think in the movie, she says people are afraid of widows. And so they won't talk to her. They're afraid of the sadness. I know there were real life stories of people like dressing as widows and stealing things. So like this was, I think, taken from some historical accounts of people using this garb to enact crime, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that that was like a very clever way of 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 using that mourning dress um because we tend to think of the victorian period as being something that was suffused in death that death was a commonplace because the mortality rate was higher than the present day and that's not really the case people were still there still was taboo around death people were still frightened of death it was just that they had this visual language and this sort of culture of communication through the clothes that you wore and the way you carried yourself um which is very very different to ours and it kind of like brought home the difference of this time period which was quite interesting to me because I found myself thinking I wish that in the present day we had a visual language of clothes with which to communicate our state of mind the state which we are in because imagine how useful that would be and interestingly she's also absorbed Miss Harrison's lesson that the clothes that you wear can help you move from society and can convey information about you. So she's like developing that into her character at that point in the film. But isn't this also a reference to the source material where Sherlock Holmes is a master of disguise who will often like change his appearance and sneak around unnoticed? And in this case, we can tell that she is the younger sister of him because she does this thing, is very masterful, it's very, very clever. Until she has to like explain why she, a widow, has come to offer her services. And they're like, but th- this doesn't make sense. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, I haven't thought this one through. <laughs> that was a great moment. But I thought that for me, that was a really nice thing about it's very clear that we're, we're watching, like I said, a child. And she's presented as a child and she behaves like a child, like a, an older child. But still, I, I thought that was uh, quite nice. 
She was so invested in perfecting the disguise that she didn't actually think about the implications of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The other uh, point that I did want to make about dress in this film, there was one um, reference at the end of the film, which was really clever in terms of thinking about Enola's politicised and gendered journey in relation to clothes. Because in all of her moves through these different sets, these different outfits of gendered clothing, she is sort of negotiating this relationship which she has with her gender and defining what femininity means to her. And this is a real Easter egg for History of Art fans. The costume that she's wearing at the end of the film shows this journey that she's been on by striking a middle ground between her politicised view of dress and her own relationship with her femininity. She's shown wearing this cream-coloured gown which has green embroidery on it, sort of rhombus-shaped details and a bit of paisley patterning on it. It's loose, it's flowing, it's lightly cinched at the waist but doesn't appear to be corseted. And in terms of the image of that dress, it is very, very reminiscent of um, the so-called aesthetic dress or free dress, which was something which became popular in the 1880s and 1890s, particularly in artistic circles. Uh, And there was a political aspect to this where they were saying, women want to be wearing more free and flowing styles. It gives them more freedom of movement. It enables them to do more activities which were associated with feminism, like playing sport or going cycling. But there's still a high level of femininity within it. And particularly in artist circles and aesthetic circles, it was inspired by earlier time periods, sort of medievalism and and Greco-Roman aesthetics. And so it was sort of lightly mocked in the press because it had a degree of ideology attached to it and was associated with concepts like women's suffrage. But it's also a form of dress that prioritises beauty, prioritises femininity and and takes something from history and and turns it towards a sort of idea of a very modern, forward-thinking 19th century woman. And so I thought that just that little costuming detail at the end there was a really, really nice way to convey the journey that Enola has been on. She still has these values which are very independent and free-thinking, but she's incorporated aspects of that femininity into her clothing as well. And that was a really interesting choice. I just love that. Yeah, I think this would be a great time to talk about ciphers, because uh, I know Sarah has a lot she wants to say about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I can't emphasize enough how little what I'm about to tell you like matters to the narrative of the film. And like, <laughs> this is... <laughs> Like, this is just a ta- this is just like, my personal project and a tangent. But I was so excited when she uses this, a code ring is what it was called in the 19th century, but it's essentially Alberti, Leon Battista Alberti's cipher that he designs in and writes about in the 1470s. So he writes this book and where he designs like the perfect way of delivering a, an encoded message. And... <laughs> so a volvel is a type of interactive movable diagram with more than one moving part that's all cinched at the center and then can rotate. On the first dial, you have the you have your alphabet in a circle, and the second one you also have the alphabet so that you can line up the letters. So you can line up your A lined up, and then you can rotate it so your A lines up with B. And then if you write down uh, Abigail, would start with B, for example, and then that's how you move through. 
that's obviously a very simple cipher. So what you would then do is that you would tell the other person that you share the cipher disk with, that have the other copy of it, how many that you would rotate uh, the dial every three letters and you might rotate it one or two steps, for example. So then A would rather line up with B, would line up with C. Right. And then every couple of letters you do that. But you have decided that beforehand. That would still be possible to decode it if you have it so what you would do then is to put the letters on the outside of your dial at random intervals or in like a random order and as long as you and the other person have the same dial and you are the only two people that know how much you would rotate it then your letter is almost impossible to decode and in the American Civil War, the outer dial was made up entirely of digits consisting of one and eight, because one and eight are the same from either direction. So if you were to intercept the message, and you also had the cipher dial, and you knew all these, this material, you still wouldn't be able to figure out which direction you would read the letter from. Uh, so it's, it's very, it's really, really clever. And it was, you know, it would have been like popular and like known about by Arthur Carandol, for example. However, the, the cipher dial that we see in this film isn't an exact replica. The, the, the inner dial is smaller and seems to consist of only numbers. She does the same calculations that you would do, but they kind of really gloss over it. And I think the reason they gloss over how it's used is that the plot kind of falls on the assumption. that Because what would have to happen is that her and her mum... And Sherlock would have the same cipher dial to be able to communicate these messages. And they would all know how many degrees to rotate it a bit on every point. So it's really glossed over how it works. But as I said, this it really doesn't matter uh, for the plot because it's completely pointless. I think it's really relevant, actually, because it shows sort of the level of depth which the production team yes. on this film went to to establish a really vibrant, rich material culture when they were building the world of this film. And I think that that's like such a lovely point that you could get that level of detail and that level of accuracy, albeit a little bit glossed for plot purposes, but you could see very clearly that that was a Volvel and it was being used in the appropriate way that that artifact should have been used. That being said, shall we talk a bit about the production values on this? Because I think they were off the charts. I think that's my favorite part of this. Like, I think this is why I've seen this film five times is just because it is so beautiful and quirky and fun. And the use of sort of Victoriana scrapbooking style looks just incredible. It's just, oh, it's so beautiful. And it warms the cockles of my heart. I just love it so much. I think, though, for me, I kept pausing because I was like, that's like a celestial diagram. Where is it from? What's the source for this? And you have to really just be like drowning in the vibes of this film. like Which is our favorite place to be. <laughs> yes, it is lovely. And I love it. But if if you start getting bogged down with the details of being like, well, is that? Surely they would not have a, a Ptolemaic universe on display. That must, can I... You're overthinking uh, then, it. You know. <laughs> yeah, you're overthinking it. Uh, yeah, it was 100% all the time. And that's, I mean, that's the thing is that, like, I kept reminding myself watching this that this is, this is a YA film. This is a kid's film. Yes. It's very much a family film. The aesthetics of it are great, but they are set dressing. And yeah. 
I kept trying to be like smart about it and like figure out what the puzzles were and things like that. And it's like, no, you just can't do that. You've just got to go like go with it. And that was the thing is that like, I would have fucking loved this film if it had come out 15 years ago. I would have been all over this. Like, between me, I would have reinvented my entire personality around this. <laughs> oh, yes. And I think um, I think the way that they've kind of brought the collage into it makes it very fun, makes it very accessible, and gives you the kind of atmosphere of the era without actually needing to kind of like, you don't need to take it very seriously because it's just all on the surface in a really engaging and accessible way. Right. And I think that you've captured a really good point there, which is like, it doesn't need to be 100% accurate because it's capturing the spirit of something. So part of what they do is they recreate Victorian media. And it's been recreated and then reanimated in this very contemporary, fast-paced, moving style. What I think is really important about that is that it's conveying something about how like the Victorian world is within this plot, which is very fast paced, very fast moving. So even though they've recreated all these media objects, all of those media objects were things which would have existed within the context of Victorian society. And Victorian society really was that yeah. fast paced, particularly in London, in the capital, where all of the sort of main action is taking place um so i just think it was like really well done so immersive but in a way that was really readable to a contemporary audience i get really nerdy and excited about all these little material culture elements um my notes throughout was about how she is a mary sue character so, so Mary Sue comes from, I think it's like originally a Star Trek parody of a woman, a girl character who is perfect in every way. She has no faults. Everyone loves her. It's a genre of popular culture that's fairly universally derided. Like fan fiction is quite looked down on in general, which it shouldn't be. And But also Mary Sue's in particular. But I think that there is something really beautiful about having this character, like having Enola be this really great character. Like she has, she has very few flaws. I would say she maybe has no flaws. I can't think really think of any. Like it's all, all her flaws and stuff. Like she is too nice <laughs> to her friends and... <laughs> She's too honourable and she's just like a little bit too clever. To me, it feels like these are things that boy characters or audiences consisting of teenage teenage boys get a lot of. There is no shortage of near-perfect self-insert boy characters in, in films or fiction in general. So, like, I think this was a really nice portrayal. The kind of concept of the Mary Sue is so complicated because of the way that it's associated with like wish fulfillment. And yeah, I think you're completely right. We have <laughs> fucking hundreds and hundreds of years of wish fulfillment for male characters written in this very specific way of like, no flaws, good at everything. You know, who the fuck is James Bond if not a Mary Sue, right? He's good at everything. <laughs> he is perfect. And he's also like emotionally blank and kind of, personality-wise bland enough that everyone can project themselves onto him. And so the kind of concept of the Mary Sue as a female character is kind of become muddied with the idea of the, like, your name, self-insert fanfic genre. There was something that I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about the kind of femininity and masculinity of, of Enola and the Marcus. And 
I think that this very much relates to the sort of YA trope of like hard girls and soft boys. That if you have a girl who is, you know, getting things done and doing things the right way, she has to be taught to have feelings. And like her narrative arc will ultimately end with her softening just enough that she can welcome other people into her life and be kind of like more open, more trusting, less suspicious, not on her own. And usually that's kind of brought in by this boy who teaches her some tenderness and teaches her some trust. And the kind of probably the most extreme example, one of the most extreme examples of this in sort of recent YA fiction is the like, Katniss is off hunting, Peter is a fucking baker, you know? (laughs) And in The Hunger Games, you have this imagery of her being like really tough and fighting and stuff like that. And he's just like painting his face and hiding in the mud. And that's a very extreme version of like hard girl, soft boy. But you have elements of that in the characterization in Enola Holmes as well, that, that she's the one who's fighting. She's the one who's saving the day. He's the one who's foraging. And I think that that's really interesting in terms of the way that, because historically the onus has been on female characters to kind of provide the vulnerability and need saving, it's actually very nice and refreshing to save the boy, you know, to do the kind of paper bag princess thing (laughs) and, and rescue the boy. But it does become difficult because... So often having this type of, for want of a better word, Mary Sue character means that your girl isn't allowed to have flaws and she has to be perfect. She has to be resilient. Weakness is a way of then kind of like losing the things that make her character interesting. And this, I don't have a conclusion to this other than like the sort of gendering of literature in particular is really complicated because you do not, like generally speaking, And this is just a kind of fact in publishing as well. You have children of all genders read books with male protagonists. Generally speaking, books with female protagonists have a much narrower readership and boys won't read girls' books is the kind of classic argument that you get. And so, yeah, this is is a kind of like bigger question mark about like what do we do with the sort of misogyny inherent in a character who is a Mary Sue I wonder, you're talking about about how in the, the classic formulation of boys won't read girl books or consume girl media, which I definitely ran into a lot working at a bookstore. I wonder if that goes partway to explaining why Henry Cavill is playing Sherlock yeah. in an effort to get manly boys interested in watching this film that primarily is about a girl and also might be why Sherlock has more feelings towards her. They even say emotion. So I think that lawsuit was spot on. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I think that could be partly go some way towards explaining that casting decision. And in in addition to carrying the sort of gendered burden of the young adult genre, which I completely agree Enola is doing, she has this additional problem as a character, which is she also has to carry the burden of the traditional canon. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen with that lawsuit, people who are fans of Sherlock Holmes are purists to the extremest oh degree. It's kind of, it's actually kind of similar to the Ripper community in that way, because they have this almost cult-like adherence to following the story to the letter and being very worshipful and respectful of the source material. So two 
dare to inject a new character into that world and into that framework. You have the problem that she has to feel earned. She can't just exist because you have to justify her existence to a group of people who are very, very puristic about the source material. And so the solution to that, of course, is to make her perfect because her presence has to be fought for within this framework. She is a Mary Sue. She is a perfect character. But in this universe, she needs to be. Completely. Um, I think in terms of uh, concluding remarks, I think the only thing I have to add is that there is a there's a a, a sequel coming this year, presumably. Yeah, <laughs> Abigail is like I'm so dancing. Congratulations, <laughs> Abigail. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I went to look up the film to re rewatch it again for this, I saw that uh, Nola Holmes two was like next to it when I typed it in. So Netflix already has the space like reserved for it, and I was like, oh, it's coming! It's happening! <laughs> I was so excited. Um, thank you all for watching this film on my suggestion. I really, really appreciate it. It was delightful. I'm so glad we yeah. did. It has something for everyone. It has fulfilled yeah. my wish to write an, a paper about Enola Holmes and statues. Yeah. I got to talk about acts Good. of parliament. Sarah got to talk about codes. Everyone's happy. I got to just squeak <laughs> about the best movie ever. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. And until next time, big sleigh.